Hello, everybody. This is the third and final, quote-unquote, Whistling Straits interlude. It's Saturday night. The score is 11-5 to to the United States. I don't think we're going to need to do another podcast on the 2021 Ryder Cup, at least until we do the podcast on the 2021 Ryder Cup. But in terms of updating again tomorrow night, don't think it's going to be necessary. I think we're going to see a very uh, run-of-the-mill, ordinary day tomorrow um, I think it's going to be over pretty quickly if you're an NFL fan probably be gratified when it's finished by about 2 30 3 o'clock eastern so we'll see if that turns out to be true stranger things I guess have happened in sports if there is a comeback by the Europeans it will be the strangest thing that's ever happened in the Ryder Cup but um, it doesn't seem like it's possible and in fact we're going to go into all the Sunday singles and everything like that but first I want to talk about what we saw today and I think the main drama of this Ryder Cup, and it's this is a low bar because <laughs> there just simply isn't that much competitive drama, but I think what the U.S. had today, after going up 6-2 on Friday, the thing they had today was the special chance to go for the Saturday win. And that's not a real thing. Obviously, they haven't actually won the Ryder Cup quite yet. But when you look at the math, we've seen two comebacks in recent history from the score of 10-6. to uh, one at Brookline and one at Medina. They're within 13 years of each other, which for such an um, such a huge comeback is kind of anomalous for to, to have two like that. It's a little bit ahistorical. It feels like you could have 30 more Ryder Cups with 10-6 margins at the end of four sessions, and you wouldn't see maybe even one comeback. But the fact that two happened in such close proximity relatively sort of gives people, I think, maybe the wrong impression of how realistic or likely it is, which is the answer is not very. Uh, if you're up 10-6, it means you need either four points or four and a half points. And of course there are 12 singles matches. And so to get that four points means basically to win a third of them, which is a really low bar, especially if you're a team that's up 10-6, which seems would seem to indicate that you have the better players and the better tactics and all that stuff. But we did see it twice. And so when you look at the concept of going for a Saturday win, what that means to me is the greatest deficit we've seen a race on a final day is five points. In both cases, in Brookline and in Medina, you had a final score of 14.5 to 13.5, which is a you know one-point advantage for the winner, starting from down four. And so you can make up five points. So what does that mean? Well, what would the five-point margin be? The five-point margin after... Saturday after Saturday afternoon would be 10 and a half to five and a half. So in theory, if you get there, the worst you can do is a tie, but of course a tie would retain the cup for Europe. And so for America to be absolutely safe and to consider yourself beyond the reach of a miracle at Medina or the Brookline miracle or whatever that one is called to get there, you've got to lead 11 to five. You've got to get at least 11 points. And with a six, two first day lead, they had a chance for that. And so first you look at the foursomes. We talked last night. It looked like another really, really good uh, slate in the morning foursomes for the U.S. You had Raman Garcia leading off for, for Europe, which is always tough, and you have to think they're going to win. But after that, the next three matches seemed like big-time advantage for the U.S., with the possible exception of Thomas and Spieth, who normally you would think would be you know, some of your top guns, but didn't look so good. But Johnson Morikawa in the second match against Casey Hatton, and the big one, Shoffley and Cantley against Westwood Fitzpatrick. It was hard to imagine that going any other way. Um, and things 
played out exactly like we thought they would. Ramon Garcia won, and then the Americans won the next three matches. So now you've got a 9-3 to three score. And now if you're Steve Stricker, you're really close within tasting distance of... Uh, I don't know if tasting distance is a phrase. If it's late on Saturday, I'm tired. But you're within two points of that 11-point margin where you look at that and say there's absolutely no way we're going to lose. Uh, he would never say that publicly. I guarantee you they're all thinking it. And I thought by the way they celebrated uh, when it was all over, I think they knew they had won. And it was more... It wasn't a full-on celebration. It's not like they're going to pop the champagne when they're up 11-5, to five, but... There was that sense that we did it. This is the thing we went out to accomplish, and we got over the mountaintop here. And tomorrow they'll have fun, and the champagne will pop, but it's going to be more of a formality. But anyway, they had to get two points, and that just means going two and two in the session, which seemed very, very gettable, uh, especially after winning the first three sessions, three to one each time. So what did we see in the afternoon? We had Fino in English, who played so well on day one against Lowry and Hatton. Kepka Spieth, which was kind of a curveball from Stricker. He wanted to rest uh, Shoffley and Cantley, so he put these guys out because he also wanted to rest Justin Thomas. So all of a sudden, what do you have left? Well, you have Jordan Spieth out there to go for a third time and either Kepka or Berger, and he went with Brooks Kepka. So that was the second group. And then you have Scheffler DeChambeau, <clears throat> who were in the half point yesterday. And then finally, because Stricker is smart and he kind of left himself some flexibility on Saturday afternoon, uh, he was able to put uh, Justin Johnson out for a fourth time and call in Morikawa because they had played so well together uh, the previous two times in alternate shot. So Lowry Hatton, uh, that match back and forth, and they took a late lead Europe. But then it looked like Finau and English had s- managed to salvage a half point on the last hole, which at the time was devastating. It seemed like it would be devastating for Europe. However, Shane Lowry then hit a miracle putt. And that I thought was very interesting because... Um, John Rahm and Sergio Garcia were about to win their match. And John Rahm was heroic. I'll talk about him more in a second. But they were about to win their match. And it's the kind of thing that almost exactly reflected what we saw at Medina in 2012, where you had Ian Poulter coming back hard on that last day, that Saturday night. Uh, And what he did seemed to kind of galvanize the European team and, uh, and sort of give them fire. And a lot of people think the momentum that he established that night uh, carried over into Sunday, and that Poulter's Saturday antics were a big part of why they eventually came back and won the next day. I'm drinking a little water here. That seems smart. So you had Raman Garcia win. Then you had Lowry make this miracle putt to preserve a one-up win. And so then the first two sessions are with <clears throat> are with Europe. But almost immediately then, uh, Johnson and Morikawa, who were absolutely on fire, poor Poulter and McElroy, they couldn't get it going all week. They beat them four and three. So the U.S. has their 10th point, which is big. But it comes down to the last match, and it's on 16. We don't know what's going to happen. Scheffler and DeChambeau against Fleetwood and Hovland. Scheffler uh, and DeChambeau are one up. And it's at the point now where if Europe can reverse this match, if they can win two of the last three holes and get a win, a draw is not going to be good enough. It gets us to that five-point margin, but it feels really bad. 10-6 doesn't feel so bad, does it? It feels like, okay, well, we know it's not likely we win, but at least we're within that Medina range, that Brookline range. So here's the last match on the course. Dusk is settling in. I think if you can just win this match, somehow maybe we have that momentum from Lowry's putt, from turning this match around, from Ramon Garcia winning. 
that you know you go three and one in that session and you're only down four points. Well, what happens is Hovland can't make a birdie putt uh, to put any pressure on on 16. Scotty Scheffler, who has been an absolute stud all week, he comes and he does his birdie putt. It was a short one. His pitch was a really good shot uh, to get him close on that hole. And then the U.S., just like that, they're dormy. And that means they're going to have 10.5 points. And with two holes to play, things would have to go really bad for them not to get the full point. And they didn't go bad. They won on the next hole. They won on 17. Um, they actually won the hole or had it conceded when it was clear that par par was going to be the absolute best the Europeans could hope for. And all of a sudden, you know, you, you had this European support staff and a very small number of fans trying to kind of urge people on throughout the day, getting increasingly irritated with the fans, as we always see. You know, I thought the Wisconsin fans were pretty good this week and Patrick Harrington agreed. But there's something about getting your butt kicked on foreign soil that starts to make things more irritating than they might otherwise be. And so you had the you know, BBC commentators and Sky Sports and the fan and the uh, the support staff and even some of the players starting to kind of pick out these fans as annoying them or offending them in some way. So the tensions are rising throughout this day and the Europeans, they never give up to their credit and they're thinking maybe they can kind of spark something here. But Scheffler and DeChambeau put out the spark and and they do it emphatically. And this is a really good team and they play really well together and they turn that match around because they were trailing for part of it. So all of a sudden you've got 11 to five and effectively the Ryder cup is over. All right. So what else do we have to talk about here? I, I do want to speak a little bit about some things that I just saw from Stricker this week. And again, you know, there is an element to the idea that when you analyze a Ryder cup, that is, this one's not in the past yet, but you know, we're speaking as if it's in the past, we're kind of doing a requiem for team Europe here. Uh, and not for, you know, for good reason. But when you um, talk about it, obviously the team that loses, the it's easy to make the captain look bad, and the team that wins, it's easy to make that captain look good. And there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. Uh, it's not just the captains. The You could have a perfect captain who did everything you asked of him, and the team, you know, doesn't execute, and that's what happens. Uh, in a close Ryder Cup, a lot of it can come down to luck, um, things like that. But anyway, you know, America had the home course advantage here. We know that. They know, we know they had a deeper squad. Their lowest ranked player was 21st in the world. We know that. Which, by the way, means if you did the U.S. against the entire world, Europe and everybody, in other words, you're combining the Presidents and the Riders' Cup, the U.S. would have the stronger team on paper. I think that's pretty interesting. But anyway, I do want to talk about Stricker because while we say that, oh, the players were so good, and, you know, we don't know necessarily that Padraig Harrington could have done anything very different. If there's some desperate moves, maybe he could have done, or he could have, you know, taken a Mark James approach and said, I really am desperate. I need to ride my eight best players. And that's the only way to do this. Uh, I don't think he managed his team very well, to be honest, but I'm not so sure that even if he was a perfect captain, anything would have been different. Still in all, we've seen many American teams that were superior on paper lose and sometimes lose badly to the Europeans. So just to kind of go over some of the things Stricker did well, and I wrote about this for golf digest uh, and I'm going to sort of uh, kind of rehash them here, but we start with something I thought was very interesting was that when the chance came to seize more captains picks, he took it and Padraig Harrington didn't, they both could have had six Stricker took all six Padraig Harrington took three. And why is that important? Well, stats show that captains picks tend to perform better 
than players who qualified automatically at the bottom of the table. So let's say you have, in Europe's case, nine qualifiers. The ones who qualified seven through nine, it's a little bit different from them. They have a world list and a European list. But anyway, the lowest qualifiers tend to perform more poorly compared to captain's picks. Well, now that we've gotten to the pair sessions, we still have some singles to go, but let's look at how it went. Steve Stricker has six captain's picks, allows him a ton of control over his team, what kind of players he wants. Their record, eight, three, and two. Very good. Europe's picks, captain's picks, there's only three. It's Shane Lowry, Sergio Garcia, and I am absolutely... Oh, and Ian Poulter, of course. They go three and three. Well, you go, that's not terrible. It's not very good. But there's two things there. First of all, three and three is not enough to have an influence. And that's the problem. Padraig Harrington didn't give himself enough captain's picks where he could significantly influence the cup with them. Eight, three, and two, that's a significant influence. You know, Stricker, Stricker's picks really were highly successful. You can measure that. But here's the other thing. By only taking three, the last three players to make that team to qualify were Leo Westwood, Matt Fitzpatrick, and Paul Casey. How do they do? So far, they're 0-7. Okay, so you ask yourself, what might have been different if Padraig Harrington had six picks? Well, on Twitter, a lot of people said he wouldn't have done much different, and I think you're probably right. This is a guy who only took three, only you know, chose to only have three captain's picks. He actually went down one from, uh, from Thomas Bjorn in 2018, and when COVID hit, he was offered to have more. He declined, and he had his reasons, I suppose, but I don't think they were good ones. So I don't know if he would have done any different, but would a perfect captain have kept Lee Westwood, 48 years old, on the team? Um, maybe not. What about Matt Fitzpatrick, somebody who didn't really rise to the occasion necessarily in 2018? He got the low end of the stick, and he did again this time, by the way. I feel kind of bad for him. Would you have taken him? Would you have taken Paul Casey? Maybe the answer is yes to some of them. I think it's probably a no to Westwood if you're being really cutthroat and not worrying about history. Uh Whistling straights, by the way, an underrated part of this course is that it's difficult to walk. Even if you're a media member walking nine holes like me, it starts to get pretty tiring by the end, full of moguls and hills and everything like that. Um, for a guy like Westwood, it's going to eat away at him, and we saw him lose twice. So that's one thing. Then there's choosing the correct captain's picks. Well, Stricker did this. Stricker did it. Uh, Jim Furyk is somebody who you look at 2018 and – his hands were kind of tied. How, how do you not take Tiger when he wins the Tour Championship? How do you not take DeChambeau when he wins two playoff events? How do you not take um, whoever else it was? Like, uh, Tony Finau he took, and who actually did really well. But some of the other captain's picks he took, from Tiger to DeChambeau, they weren't really suited for the Paris Le Golf National in Paris, and they didn't do well. And he's expressed regret privately that he took these guys. He thinks maybe if he had taken... You know, Matt Kuchar, Kevin Kisner types, it would have been better suited to the course. Who knows? Maybe you have a better outcome there. Well, Stricker decided, I'm not going to do this. With my captain's picks, I'm not going to make this mistake. He learned from Furyk. And by the way, Furyk is his vice captain, so I'm sure Furyk imparted this lesson to him too. He learned that, and he's going to take guys for his course. Well, in this case, it's a different idea than the Golf National. This is a wide-open bombers course, so he's not going to take the Kisners or a Kevin Na, or somebody like that. And he was going to take Scotty Scheffler and, and players of that nature. So he made the right choice there to kind of focus on the course. He reduced all their extracurricular stuff. We you know, we heard Brooks Kepka complain about that. All they did this week was team dinners with each other. Now, let's be honest, COVID lent a hand there. They had a good excuse not to have to go to galas or whatever. But 
he did do that. He made it easier for them, and there were no inspirational videos. It's kind of funny now, isn't it, to look back at you know, the Europeans wearing cheese heads in front of the crowd or having this inspirational video where they you know, compared how many Ryder Cup golfers there were to how many astronauts had been on the moon or in space or whatever the deal was. Pardon me. And that was, you know, construed by some to be a big deal and narratives were made about it in the middle of the week. Well, Stricker didn't do any of that stuff. He didn't like it when he was a uh, player and some stuff made him nervous and anything that basically was unpleasant to him or didn't help him, he cut it out. And that's his leadership style. The U.S. didn't need it. Uh, and so these guys basically, like I said, ate dinner together and golfed, and that's it. That was the only thing they had to do. Other than that, they could go to their gym, they could work out, they could hang out with their families, whatever the case may be. And, you know, even Brooks Kepka said this was successful and a lot easier for him this week. The other thing, we went over this yesterday, so I'll breeze over it quickly, but the players knew what to expect. They knew who they were going to play with on Friday. They knew all 12 of them were going to get out there. There was a plan for both sessions. It worked. Sticker stuck by it. And that's the next one is sticking to the plan after success. Easy uh, to kind of have a panic move if you're failing and break away from the plan. But it's also deceptively easy when you're successful to break away from a plan. How easy would it have been after Friday morning to put Cantley and Shoffley back out there? Or to sit Thomas and Spieth completely? There's a, or, you know, to put DJ and Morikawa back. There's a million things that you could have done. He didn't do it. He stuck with his plan that he had drawn up, probably saw how Tom Watson was sort of led around by his gut instinct and how that hurt the team. Uh, and so he said, I'm, I've got this plan and I'm going to stick to it. However, the next point is he gave himself flexibility on Saturday. He said, we have a plan for Friday. We don't have one for Saturday. We're going to see how it goes. Well, obviously, the foursome sec- uh, morning session on Friday was very successful. So why not run the same guys out? He did. And that was smart. And he got three wins. And then in the afternoon, he's got flexibility to say, okay, look, at this point, I am going to look at how they've done. DJ and Morikawa seem pretty unbeatable to me. They're going to go back out in four ball. I want to rest Justin Thomas. I want to rest Shoffley. I want to rest Cantley. So we're going to get this weird team of Kepka and Spieth, and then we're going to trot out Finau in English and DeChambeau and Scheffler, the former of which got a win. The latter should have had a win, got a little unlucky, and got the half. So we're going to try these guys again. And not everything has to work. Okay, they went two and two in that last session. It was the only session they didn't win outright. But at that point, guess what? They needed two points to get to 11. They did it. All right, the next thing I think we have to mention quickly, I didn't put this in my article, but is that the DeChambeau-Kepka stuff, he suppressed it very, very well, and he got the players to suppress it. Has not been an issue all week. There were a lot of questions asked in the lead-up. Everybody said the right things, and you don't hear anything about it. God knows what's going on in the team room, but I would guess that's probably about as harmonious as you're going to get in a team room with players like that. He took that completely out of the equation, and that's not always easy. And finally, understanding the leadership style the team needed. Okay, when he was chosen as captain, there were a lot of people who would say this is not an inspirational guy. He doesn't have a ton of charisma. He's not necessarily someone who's going to go and give you a great speech, a rah-rah speech, and get you fired up. Maybe he's not a leader of men, and maybe this is not a good choice. Well, look, I think that is highly, highly overrated sometimes, that stuff, especially for the Americans. I think there was a press conference earlier this week where it was the first one they did, Stricker and Harrington together, and a European reporter after said that Harrington had run circles around him. 
like this was a big deal, you know, like they're going to gain some material benefit from this. And it's along the same lines as the arguments about the inspirational videos and things like that. I'm not saying these things can't be good supplements, but they are not the substance of it. But anyway, the point is Steve Stricker is not necessarily someone with massive amounts of charisma or presence or whatever you want to call it, but he was a great planner. The people respect and like him, the players on Team USA. And guess what? Team USA, whether they're rookies or not, these are players with a ton of talent, with a, with ego, with a ton of ego. A lot of them are self-absorbed, and I don't mean that as a, like I'm name-calling them. I just mean that this is the life they lead, where they are islands unto themselves, uh, surrounded by their teams. They don't necessarily need somebody who's going to go up and give the big inspirational speech that's going to make them go play better. What they need, I think, is someone just like Stricker, a planner, someone who lets them know exactly what to expect, makes their lives easy during the week, and just sets the stage for them to go play great golf if they've got it in them. And so I, I think those things I just wanted to mention quickly with Stricker because those are the things he did right. And I'm not here to really necessarily say that Harrington did a terrible job. I think he could have done better. But I think when you're up against a guy in Stricker with a better team at home doing all those things right, you have a tall, tall mountain to climb no matter who you are. And I, you know, I think it would have been fun to see Paul McGinley try. I don't think maybe anybody could have done it. Maybe if there's someone who could, it would have been him. But in any case, uh, I do think uh, Stricker deserves a tip of the cap for how he managed this thing, got them to this point, and uh, you know, it finds himself on the verge of winning a very special Ryder Cup for him in his home con- in his home state, and of course, a very big one for the United States because they this is one I don't think they could lose. All right, so. What else we got here? Only a couple more minutes. Um, oh, yeah, we might as well talk about the singles lineup while we're here. Oh, no, first, you know, let me talk about John Rahm because <laughs> this is going to get lost. And, it, <clears throat> you know, it's just natural that it gets lost because the U.S. is going to win a massive victory. But John Rahm was completely heroic. I mean, he blew my mind all week. We watched him in the last match today. Uh, in the afternoon session, you know, making that huge birdie on 16. It seemed like he was pouring in big putts all weekend, taking the very best that the U.S. had to offer. It was Kepka Berger today. It was uh, Spieth and Thomas on day one. I mean, everywhere you looked, he was playing the best players, and he was beating them. Sergio Garcia was a help. I'm not going to deny that. But John Rahm is the number one golfer in the world. He was the one making the majority of the big shots. And I think the more I think about it, the more impressed I am because he's really the best player of this Ryder cup. And isn't that funny to say about somebody who's on a team that is trailing 11 to five. Um, so anyway, kudos to John Rahm, but here's something that I do think is interesting too, is there's a long history in the Ryder cup of players who kind of carry their team over four sessions, not having the energy to win on single Sunday. Some examples, we always talk about Rory in Hazeltine. I think Justin Thomas actually in Melbourne at the President's Cup is a really good example. He kept that team afloat and they, you know, kept them close enough that they could go out and win on Sunday in singles, but he himself kind of faded out and, and couldn't do it. And I asked him point blank, you know, did you run out of gas? And he said, yes. And he, he liked the Rory comparison to Hazeltine. He kind of, I think, saw himself in that. So I would, if you're a betting person, I'm not giving out betting tips, don't knock on my door, but 
of the 12 matches going out tomorrow, the Vegas has favored the U.S. in 11 of them. The one they haven't is John Rahm and Scotty Scheffler, and Scotty Scheffler is going to be rested. He's played very, very well. He's come up big under pressure. Again, I've, I've been on a prediction roll lately, so I'm just going to say it. I would expect Scotty Scheffler to beat John Rahm tomorrow. Crazy as that sounds. And, you know, I say that with some trepidation, actually, because Rom has been so good and just captured that sort of Spanish magic that we've seen throughout the years in the Ryder Cup, starting in the beginning with Seve Ballesteros, that maybe I'm stupid to pick against him, quite frankly. But I'm just going to go off the history of the Ryder Cup here and just kind of at least mention that, just flag it. And the funny thing was about this single session, I looked over it and I said, I can talk myself into 11 victories for the U.S. and apparently Las Vegas agrees. So I thought that was interesting. You go down the line. Shoffley should beat McElroy. McElroy's been terrible. Cantley should beat Lowry just because Cantley's tough. Scheffler and Rom, you know, Rom will be favored there, and you would expect just on paper Rom to win. But I do think that aspect of playing four sessions could get to him. DeChambeau and Garcia call that one a wash. Morikawa, Hovland, Morikawa playing very very well. DJ has the only player who on the U.S. who played all four sessions. He won all four. He could become the first player t- since Larry Nelson to win five points in this format. Only the second American ever and the third person ever. The other was, of course, Molinari in Paris. And he's playing Paul Casey, who's looked terrible. You expect him to win that match, even though, again, he played four. Maybe he's tired. Kepka Wiesberger, advantage Kepka. Finau Poulter, advantage Finau. Justin Thomas Hatton, neither one of them's played that great. Call it a wash at best. English and Westwood, Westwood has been awful. English has been good. Spieth and Fleetwood, call it a wash, maybe, being generous. And then Berger and Fitzpatrick, I would give the slight edge to Berger there. So I think it was always going to be extremely difficult on a day that was sunny, that is going to be sunny tomorrow, not going to be much wind compared to the first two days. Knowing these lineups, I thought it would be really shocking if Europe got to six points in singles, meaning they won half of them. Now that I look at the lineups, I would be somewhere beyond shocked if they got to six. I think it's going to be really easy, and I think the last little bit of drama in this Ryder Cup is whether the U.S. can get to eight points in singles and set the record for 19 points overall. I suspect they won't get there. They'll fall just short. Anyway, um, yeah, I think massive edge for the U.S., and I think it would have looked like a massive edge for the U.S. no matter what these lineups were. And so that's all I think I have for tonight. But it's been an interesting Ryder Cup. It's not going to be the most exciting Sunday ever, but I think it did deliver in the sense of watching a a good captain at work. And I think it bodes really, really well for America. You always have to prove it, don't you, by winning on the road before you can say something like, the tides have turned. And it's very tempting to say that, I have to say. And my colleague Joel Beal wrote it, and I didn't disagree. The tides have turned a little bit, and that you know, expect America to start winning more than their fair share because their young guys look incredibly tough. Europe's don't, quite frankly, other than select few. And it seems like this U.S. team, if they can keep you know some of these same guys together, they're going to be you know swaggering big alpha stars for the foreseeable future. And Europe, you go, they're going to, they're losing. You're, this is the generational shift. Europe is losing all their players that have been Ryder Cup legends forever. And I don't know that there's that many out there who seem like they're going to fill their shoes. But that's looking way ahead, and you do have to prove it by winning in Rome. Maybe we thought this in 2016, too, when they went and got their butts kicked in Paris. So there's a lot to, lot to happen still. 
But anyway, a really good Ryder Cup for the U.S. Really great job by Steve Stricker. It went kind of how we thought we d- it did, but it only went that way because they had a good ha- captain at the helm, and the players that you counted on and thought they fit this course really well ended up playing out of their minds and really taking it to the Europeans. And maybe most impressively of all, the first time they met a little adversity today in the afternoon, finishing with courage and finishing with style and putting the Ryder Cup out of reach. And that's where we are. So we're going to end Whistling Straits Interlude 3 right here. Like I said, unless something nuts happens tomorrow, it won't come back tomorrow. Um, and the next time you'll hear from me is when I do the next episode of, a, of an old Ryder Cup. The next one will be 1987 to complete the Jacklin Trilogy. Again, you may have you probably know this already from previous episodes. I am writing a Ryder Cup book. Uh, I'm going to put a pre-order link in. If you want to just go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or IndieBound or wherever, type in the cup they couldn't lose, you can order it that way. Thanks very much for listening and uh, for dealing with the sort of off-the-cuff, dry-mouth, need-water-type uh, presentation here. Um, it'll be more professional in the future, but hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoyed this Ryder Cup.